We are continuing the series that we started last week called Vantage Points, and uh, it's a different kind of series for us. There's not a lot of notes. Actually, there are no notes for you to fill out. Uh, It's intentional, so I don't have any any blanks or anything for you. Uh, Really, a big part of what we want to do in this series is is just walk through a story. You say, what story is that? We're walking through the final moments of of Jesus' life as he approached the cross and taking a look at three specific encounters that he had with people on that journey. This, this sermon series literally takes place in the course of just one day of history, and each week we get one step closer to the cross. We're calling it vantage points because you know, a vantage point is really nothing more than just a, a position uh, from which you observe something and which, how you see it, whether that be a vantage point of overlooking a, uh, you know, a certain scenery or something like that, or just but more so kind of a vantage point in life. How, how do you view Something And how do you observe it? And how is it, it, it impacting your life? And, and the question that we're really asking, and, and not really trying to so much answer as much as you answer it for yourself and where you're at, is as being in this Easter season, is what is your vantage point of Jesus and the cross and, and this Easter season? How, how do you, you observe it? From what position are you looking at it? And maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't really know how you, you view it. You don't really know if you even believe it or not. That's okay. We're all on a journey. Maybe, maybe you're here because someone brought you and you have disagreed with it in the past, but maybe that's your vantage point. Or maybe you're on the other side where you say, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christ follower and I believe all of this. And, but maybe for you, your vantage point is that the whole message of it and the story of it has just become so normal and familiar to you that it's just last, lost its luster, so to speak, where it doesn't move you the way that it used to. And it's just become kind of like, yeah, I know. I've heard it all before. Um, I grew up with it, Sunday school, all that good stuff. And my challenge to you in, and really to everyone is, is regardless of your vantage point is maybe we could just set that aside for this week and, and next week and even the, the week following as we do something in line but a little bit different and just say, hey, I know what my vantage point is, but I'm open to be challenged, so to speak. And my encouragement to you is just to listen. Right? Just listen to this story. We're just going to dive into the story. I don't really have a lot of practical application points in this message, and that's intentional too because I really think that you know, at times in the church, we attempt to answer too many questions. I think we should answer some, don't get me wrong. But I think the Bible has such a way, because we believe that it is alive and active, of just informing our lives and getting up on the inside of us and helping us find where we are, but helping us move to where God wants us to be. My challenge is just listen, get into this story, maybe identify a little bit with where you are and who you are in this story. And we're going to pick up today where we left off last week. I mean, literally verse after verse. Last week, we took a look at the story of of Barabbas. And I just kind of want to provide some context to bring us all up to speed, maybe if you weren't here. But what we, we, we find is that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. The reason he's at Jerusalem is because it's the time of Passover celebration for the Jewish people. And it is arguably the largest celebration and, and holiday that they celebrate. And up until this point in history, they've been celebrating it for about 1,500 years. And what they're celebrating is how God delivered them out of slavery from the nation of Egypt. When they were enslaved, the entire nation, and Moses brought them out, and God led them to the promised land. That's what they're celebrating. They still celebrate it to this day. And Jesus was there for that, and, and, and through the course of, of some crazy events, Jesus ends up getting brought upon trial by his own country people. And the, the, the authority for the Jewish people was the, the religious authority. 
They were teachers and prophets. They were called Pharisees. And they had like a Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. And they, they hated Jesus. They did not like him. They did not believe he was the son of God. He was challenging their way of life. He was challenging the kind of money that they made because they were taking advantage of people when it came to atoning for sins and their sacrifices and temple worship and stuff. And Jesus was just upsetting all of that, breaking all their rules and stuff. And so they finally had it. They brought him up on trial and they accused Jesus of two things. They accuse him of blasphemy, number one, for claiming to be the son of God. And then they accuse him of treason against the Roman Empire. See, Israel at the time was underneath Roman rule. And the Romans didn't necessarily care about blasphemy, that they could care less about what the Jews believed. But what they did care about is treason. And see, they wanted Jesus executed. So they, they send him before Pilate, who's the governor for Rome, for Jerusalem. And as they do that, the reason they do that is because Rome will execute Jesus if he's found guilty. So they do that. Now, Jerusalem is just teeming full of people, packed full of people, people from all over the place to celebrate Passover celebration. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate, and they announce their, uh, their accusations against him. And so Pilate begins to interrogate him, their accusation that he's committed treason against Rome. Pilate literally says... I find no guilt in this man. I think Jesus is innocent. He says, so Jesus, you claim to be the king of the Jews. And Jesus says, it is as you say. And throughout the whole process, Pilate's just not convinced that he's trying to lead a revolution. So what he decides to do is put Jesus before the people and say, well, what do you want me to do? What would you have me do? Well, there was a, a custom that they had at Passover time where they would, they would, uh, Pilate would release to them a guilty prisoner. And so that's what they call for. They say, we want you to release a prisoner. He thought they would pick Jesus, but they didn't. They picked Barabbas. And Barabbas was a man that was found guilty of uh, treason against Rome. He led a violent revolt or an insurrection. And he was found guilty of murder as well. He was sentenced to die by crucifixion. And the cross that Jesus took and the beating that Jesus took was Barabbas's. And so they, he says, okay, well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? And the crowd demands crucifixion. They command, they, they command and, and demand that they want Jesus executed. So where we left off last week was Barabbas and Jesus, ultimate guilt in Barabbas, ultimate grace and forgiveness and innocence in Jesus coming face to face. And we see that Barabbas goes away a free man. And Jesus never says a word. And Barabbas does not have to pay the, the punishment for his crime. He gets the gift of the gospel right there, and he goes free. And we don't know how he lived his life. We don't. We don't know if he ever changed, but all we know is that Jesus stood there, never said a word, and took that all on himself. And we ended last week with with the scripture saying, and Jesus was sent away to be flogged, which means whipped or scourged. And that's where we pick up right here. What we're going to read today is Mark Mark chapter 15, verse uh, 16 through 22. We're going to talk about an encounter, a man named Simon, who's from Cyrene. And we're going to talk about uh, that encounter. And this story um, is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the four Gospels. And I'm going to read it in Mark simply because that's where we started last week. So if you have your Bibles or your tablets or your phones, you can turn there. Otherwise, just follow me here. Here's what it says. Then the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, called the Praetorium, and they called out the entire regiment. They dressed him, Jesus, in a purple robe, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it into his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. 
And then they led him away to be crucified. Well, a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside. And just then, the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Now, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. What I'd like to do this morning is, is go through this story and work our way back right to where we ended there with Simon and Jesus ending up at the place of execution called Golgotha. So what we read last week, Jesus is taken away to be flogged. What the Romans would do when someone was uh, condemned to execution by crucifixion, they didn't just take them right to the cross. They took them through a process of torture. Now, the whole thing about being crucified was designed to die slowly. It was designed to be a torturous process and an incredibly public process where everybody could see. So what they would do is they would take them to another part of the praetorium, which is, think about if you went to Jeff City and you saw the Capitol building, right? That's what the praetorium is. It's where Pilate lived. It's where justice was carried out. So they take Jesus to another part of the, of the praetorium, and it's kind of like a courtyard. And they take him there to be whipped and flogged. This was the preliminary thing that they did before execution. And based on how the prisoner came out of being flogged or whipped, it was a good determining factor in how long it would take them to die while they were being crucified. So they lead Jesus away. And one of the things you have to keep in mind is that this wasn't the only trial that Jesus stood. He, he went to trial before uh, his own countrymen and before they brought him before Rome. And at each trial, they beat Jesus. Jesus has been awake for probably over 24 hours, probably hasn't eaten, has been beaten physically, and is just exhausted at this point. They take him there to this courtyard in the praetorium, and all the people that, that uh, had, had been there and cheering for Jesus to be executed have now come to watch this, because Romans did public punishment, right? It wasn't like we do it where you know it's kind of behind closed doors and private. It was public, and it worked in their favor, because what they could do is say, hey, if, they, if you're going to do this, if you want to lead a revolt against us, this is your lot. This is how you're going to end up. Okay, so they brought Jesus here. These people, it's probably like two or three stories, maybe, where people can stand and look and watch. And there's a pole erected in the center, and it's only for this purpose. We don't know how big it is, but it had these straps at the top. So they would strip Jesus naked. And I want to pause here for a moment. This is history, okay? Whether whether you believe in Jesus or not, this is historical fact, okay? This isn't even part of the story. We know this based on records of what they did to prisoners. So they strip him naked completely, and they tie his hands above his head to the pole with his chest in the front of his body facing this, and he was probably at a somewhat of a, an angle you know, where his knees were bent, but his full backside is exposed. That's how they would hang the prisoner, stripped naked in front of all these people. Then what they had is they had this whip. I got an imaginary one. This whip, right? Little handled whip. It was made of leather. Some people call it a cat of nine tails. If you're growing up in church, you probably heard that. But all that was is, is that off this whip came threads of leather or strips of leather. Maybe nine. We don't really know for sure. Bible tells us that Jesus was beaten with a lead-tipped whip. We know from history what they would do is they would take lead balls and they would somehow attach them to the leather. So each strip of leather had a lead tip on it, which brought a lot of force when it came through. In addition to the lead tips, they would take shards of broken sheep's bone that were very sharp, and they would somehow get that in the leather, and they would be attached. 
So then the Roman guards, and the Bible said they, caused that, they called out an entire regiment. That could be up to maybe 600 soldiers. I mean, these people meant business, right? They probably called them out to keep the peace of people because the crowd was bloodthirsty at this point, just packed with people. There would have been a centurion who was a Roman, you know, kind of like he was an official in the, in the Roman army. He was an officer. And this centurion would oversee the entire crucifixion process. And we're going to talk about him next week. But they would take that whip, or, or one of them would, and what they would do is, is they would position the prisoner, and then they would take that whip, and with all their force, they would bring it through. They would come through hard, and that lead would catch, you know, this whip right over. And as it would hit the prisoner's back, or Jesus' back in this case, it would cause contusions in the skin. And instead of and bruising, instead of just letting the whip down and then repeating that process, they would then, as it kind of came around right here, you know, and caught, they would then rip back in an action. And that sheep's bone, the shards of it, would then slice through the skin and causing layers and then obviously uh, a lot of blood, though. And they would repeat that process. And they would do it uh, to both sides of the back of the prisoner, Jesus, in this case. Now, we don't necessarily know how many times he was whipped. A lot of people would say 39 times. That comes from Bible indicating that there was customary that they would whip a prisoner, according to Jews, 39 times. And you say, why 39? Because they thought that at the 40th time, a man would, would actually die. We don't know if that was just their thought process or they learned that by experience. So it's safe to say he was probably whipped 39 times with that whip, lead tips and shards. What would happen to the body at that time is is that you would go into shock and you would probably pass out from the intense pain. It wasn't designed to kill them. It was just designed to wear them down. So after that process, Jesus being scourged, whipped, and, and all of that, they take him down from that pole in the courtyard. And again, this is all public. And then they get a a a thorn bush, or if you've ever seen those things, you walk out into the woods and it seems like thorns are just hanging from the tree and they get it somehow and they they form it and shape it into a crown. They weave it together and then they they jam that on on his head. Now, we don't know if they did that with every prisoner or if they just did this to Jesus because of his claim to be a king, right? He claimed to be the king of the Jews. And remember, the Romans, there is no king but Caesar. And then they took a purple robe. It's interesting that it's... We know the color. Well, why not blue? Why not red? Why not green? But purple is a sign of royalty. The royalty wore purple. And they're obviously, they're mocking Jesus. And they take this purple robe, and then they put it on him. Now, I think the text kind of makes it seem rather innocent, but, but really we get the imagery and kind of the understanding that when they put this robe on him, they just jammed it on his back and pounded it on his back that was so you know, raw and, and just fresh with, with the beating. And then what they did is they began to, to beat him with their hands. They spit on him. They had these, these staffs that they used. And the Bible says they knocked him in the head with it or cracked him in the head with the stick. And then they begin to, to worship him as he's bloody and beaten and say, oh, hey, oh, King Jesus, and you know, just mocking him. It says after they got tired of that, after they had their fill of that, what they then did is they ripped that robe off of him, left the crown on, but ripped the robe. And you can imagine and ripping that, that piece of cloth off of someone's back or body who's been that beaten and bloodied. It would already started to dry and, and stick and almost become like a layer of skin, intensifying the pain. And then they put Jesus' own clothes back on him. Now, if that's not enough, the second part of the process that they have is that they would then force the prisoner to carry a portion of the cross from the praetorium to 
Golgotha. Now, Golgotha is the place that, uh, where they executed people by crucifixion. We don't necessarily know for sure what the distance between the Praetorium and Golgotha is, but they estimated it being approximately one-third of a mile. Now, it's one-third of a mile, and it's not flat. It's mostly going to be uphill. And they would force the prisoner to carry that cross. Now, you see, some people say it was the whole cross, but a lot of people believe it was just the beam because historically we know that they would take the, the main beam, the, the horizontal, or vertical beam of the cross, and they would set it on the hill days in advance to let the city know an execution is about to happen, to get it into the psyche and the minds of people. So this beam that Jesus would have carried would have been anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. Uh, and they would set it on their back, and they would make them carry it. Now, what they would also do is, is they would take a, a placard of sorts, and they would attach either a rope or a strap to it. They would write the name of the prisoner on it, and then they would write the crime, and then a Roman soldier or a few of them would walk in front of Jesus. And you have to, uh, the prisoner, Jesus in this case, you have to remember this is very public, right? So all these people that were part of the beginning are now part of it. There's probably more. If so many people are in the city wondering what's going on. And they would, they would line the path from the praetorium to the hill, Golgotha, and they would watch the prisoners, or prisoners in this case, because there were two other men, two, not four, two other men, two, that were executed with Jesus. And they would watch this process. And they would be cheering and mocking. And then you had the people who loved the prisoner that would be weeping and crying. I mean, this was just like craziness, right? Craziness. So the Roman soldiers would be walking and they would be announcing, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, convicted of treason against Rome, prisoner to die by, by crucifixion. They would shout it the whole way, one third of a mile, just so disgraceful, so much shame. And the person who had just experienced that, the prisoner is, is on the brink of death. Well, the issue is, is, is that usually the, the prisoners had enough life left in them to make the journey, right? To make the one-third journey uphill. Now, now this isn't like a, a path exclusively used for this. They would literally just take over the roads, and, and, and they had the path that would go there. And some places in history, they call it the Via Dolorosa, the walk of shame is what it means, or the walk of pain. And Jesus, he, he doesn't have the energy left. He doesn't have the life left within him to make the journey. It wasn't just the beating at the, the praetorium. It was the process of being awake for so many hours and the multiple beatings that he had and the physical exhaustion and the psychological exhaustion. He literally had nothing left. We don't know how far into the journey that he made it, the one-third of a mile. We, we have no idea. We don't know how many times he fell. But all we know is that it got to the point where he literally could not bear up underneath the weight of the 75 to 125 pound wooden beam on his back. So much so to the point that the Roman soldiers grab a man out of the crowd and force him to carry this cross. And this is where we meet Simon. And before we go any further, I just kind of just want to dig into who is Simon? Who is this man? He, he's important enough that the Bible gives him a name. When the Bible names somebody, it, it's something that we should take a look at. Because they could have just said, we grabbed some dude and made him carry the cross. But we don't get that. The Bible says they grab Simon, and he tells us where, and he tells us where he's from. Simon of Serene, or Serene. Now, we know that Simon is a Hebrew name. So it's a really good indication that he's probably, he's a Jewish man. 
But Serene, we know where that is. That's in the modern-day country of Libya, which is in northern Africa. And Cyrene is the, what many believe is the modern-day city of Tripoli, which is right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So then you have to wonder, what is a guy who is from northern Africa doing in Jerusalem? Because I googled it, and it's 1,740 miles from modern-day Tripoli to Jerusalem by land. 34 hours by car, bus, something. And you can get there by water, but Google doesn't figure that for you. So I don't know. If you're going to walk it, it's about 558 hours or so. So why did he make this journey all the way to Jerusalem from Tripoli, Cyrene, Libya? Well, they believe that he came because he's Jewish. He came to celebrate the Passover. It's a once-in-a-lifetime trek for him. I mean, he's a Jew. This is, this is the, the biggest ceremony, and he made this trip to celebrate uh, the, the biggest thing in, that in, his, in his belief system. He was there along with thousands and maybe, probably hundreds of thousands of other Jews to celebrate the Passover. And we know that he wasn't involved in the, in the accusations against Jesus or the process because the Bible tells us that he's a passerby. He's simply passing by from the countryside. So he literally is just coming and walking through the city to get somewhere else. That's, that's what we know. And he's, as he's doing that, he is forced by the Roman guards who have ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. They told you to do something, you had to do it, no questions asked. You didn't get to talk about it. You didn't get your options. I mean, the Bible says they compelled Simon, which means they forced him. didn't mean they influenced him. It means they forced him to do it. And because we know that Simon is, is from northern Africa, and we know that he's simply just passing by, we know that he knows nothing of Jesus. Nothing. He didn't know who this is. He didn't know any of the stories. He didn't know the, 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 the complex political stuff going on around him. He, he didn't know that. He was simply just he's innocent, just passing by. Some, some scholars say that the reason he was probably picked out is because being from northern Africa, he was of dark complexion, he was black, and it was probably easy to just grab him out of the crowd because he would have looked different than most of the other people. So he's forced and he's compelled. Doesn't know anything about Jesus. Has, has, has nothing that in him wants to be associated with a convicted prisoner of the, of the government that is ruling in the day. He's forced into this. He, he wrote, the Bible says the Roman soldiers take this beam, 75, 125 pounds, and just put it on his shoulders and say, you will carry this thing till we tell you to not carry this thing. We don't know, again, at what point of the journey this was. But what we do know is that Simon had to carry this, this cross, this beam, the rest of the way to the point of the execution for Jesus, to Golgotha. And here's something that, that I find pretty interesting. If you think about it, Jesus had been carrying this cross for, for some amount of time, and based on the fact of the situation and the state of his body, he's still bleeding quite a bit. And so the, the blood of Jesus would have been all over this cross, all over this wooden beam, all over the place. So, so the moment that it gets put on Simon, the blood of Jesus gets, gets all over Simon, all over him. And being a Jewish man, and it being ready to, time to celebrate Passover, the blood of someone else, if it got on you, would make you ceremonially unclean according to the Jewish faith. And when you were ceremonially unclean, you could not participate in temple worship. And it wasn't like as easy as just to go take a bath and then now you're good. There was a process to become clean. So what that means is that the whole purpose that Simon came to Jerusalem, 1,740 miles, 34 hours, was done. He couldn't participate. 
He could not go into the temple and worship. He could not take part in the Passover celebration because in that moment, because of the blood of Jesus, he became ceremonially unclean. Unclean. I, I find it so interesting that according to the, to the law, that the blood of Jesus would make him unclean in a practical sense, but that according to the grace of God and his ultimate plan for reconciliation and salvation, the blood of Jesus is what makes us clean spiritually, right? That it, it washes us of all sin. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, all unrighteousness. What Simon thought in the moment was making him unclean and unable to participate in the temple worship was actually saving his life. It was actually saving him. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So he, he carries this cross the rest of the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And that's, that's all we know. We, you know we, can, we can speculate. Did they just say, all right, you're done. Set it there. See you later. We don't need you anymore. Probably would happen. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't on trial. He wasn't guilty. His day was ruined, big time. Couldn't participate in what he came to participate in. So did he stay and watch? Was he, he, he intrigued enough to know, to want to know what, what, what's going to happen here? What's, what's going on? Did he stand there and, and watch the man that he carried the cross for, the process ensue and him be executed by crucifixion? We don't know. You know, the Bible doesn't give us any record of a, any conversation between Jesus and Simon. We know that they physically came into contact due to the proximity of what's going on. We know that there was probably a moment that Simon and Jesus exchanged a glance. We know that, that Simon came into contact with Jesus at, 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 at arguably the most vulnerable and weak moment of his life. And I think the question, at least for me, maybe for you, is what happened to Simon? What did that encounter do to him? Did it make him so angry and ruin his trip that he just was, he was full of rage? What, what, what happened to him? Or did it just did it impact him? Is it possible to come into that close of contact with Jesus in that moment and us, us looking back on it, knowing obviously the significance of it, of which only Jesus did and, and Simon didn't, nor, nor did anybody else. But did, did, did something happen to him? I had someone after the first service ask me, he said, you know, Josh, when the Bible shares the story about the lady who touched the hem of his garment, right? Just touched Jesus' garment and was healed. He said, was there a possibility that when the actual blood of Jesus was on him, that something may have happened to him? And I said, I never thought about it that way. That's a really neat thought. We don't know. I can't answer that for sure. But we asked the same question about Barabbas. What happened with his life? Did he become a good man? Did he change? Did he, you know, instead of leading a revolution, maybe he led a different type of revolution for Jesus? And that, that question we cannot answer because the Bible doesn't tell us. History doesn't tell us. We don't know. But you know the interesting thing about Simon is, is, is that we, we do know. We do know what happened to him. If we fast forward to Acts chapter 13. Now Acts was written by, the, by Luke who wrote the book of Luke. It's basically just the second volume of how the early church started. What happened after Jesus ascended into heaven. And they were building the church and it was growing and leaders were being established. And, and then we get to chapter 13 and we find some unique pieces of information. They're going to put it up here on the screen. I want to... Let's talk through it with you. But Acts chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read them to you. We can just go through the slides all together. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, 
Lucius from Cyrene, Manian, the childhood companion of King Herod of Antipas, and one day, as, and Barnabas and Saul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Now, if we go back to the first verse, and you can put it up, the first verse, what we see is, is we see Simeon called the black man. How interesting. Did you know that Simeon is just an alternative pronunciation of the name Simon or Shimon in Hebrew? And then the second verse talks about, and Lucius, and they're both from Cyrene. What are the chances? That Simon, who is called the black man because he's black, he's from Northern Africa, right? Don't you ever think that it's amazing that the Bible just gives us those inf- that piece of information? Like, why is it important? Oh, it becomes so important. And they're both from Cyrene. How did Lucius know about Jesus? How did Lucius from Cyrene find out about this Jesus in the early church? Well, it's from Simon. It's the same guy. Here's the amazing thing. We don't know if Simon stayed and watched the crucifixion. We do know that he encountered Jesus. But now, but now he's among the early prophets and teachers of the early church. And here's what is so cool, right? He's with Barnabas and Saul. Saul is actually Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, right? Who is arguably the greatest missionary of all time, the father of, 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 of the faith, not like overtaking Jesus, but amazing that this man, Simon of Cyrene, is part of laying hands on Barnabas and Saul, Paul, and commissioning them to go out and preach the gospel. He is part of arguably the greatest missionary send-off in history and of the known world coming to faith. We know what we know about Jesus and salvation because of the writings of Paul and what the Holy Spirit did through him. And here is Simon the black man from Cyrene, a passerby who knew nothing of Jesus, who knew nothing of what was going on, was just simply trying to get from point A to point B, is thrust into what we now know a monumental time in history. Later, a few years later down the road, we see he's part of the early church of Jesus exploding. How amazing is that? And you know what else? When we read the passage today in Mark, I don't know if it seemed odd to you, but it seemed odd to me that we're reading about how Simon had to carry this cross and the Romans are doing this and they're going to Golgotha. And then in parentheses, it says, by the way, uh, Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Thank you. That's cool. It seems odd. Doesn't it seem out of place? Like, well, why, why is that important? You know, Jesus is dying. This guy, you already told us he's just passing by. Well, if you go to Romans chapter 16, Uh, Paul, he wrote this too. This is after Acts and after he became a missionary. And he's writing at the end of his letter and he's greeting some people. And he says, hey, hey, greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own. And also his dear mother, who's been a mother to me. Now, people who are a lot smarter than me and have degrees bigger than my name have come to the point in history to believe that this is the same Rufus that is mentioned in Mark who Simon is the father of. And not only that, but Simon's wife, who become like a mother to Paul. You see, Simon met Jesus way before Paul ever did. I believe that from that moment that Simon's life became, it was never the same, never the same. So we don't know what happened to Barnabas, but we do know what happened to Simon. And I just think that's really cool. I just think that, that, that the Holy Spirit and God would give us a glimpse into what happens in some of these encounters and some of these moments. So here's the question that I have, and we'll end on this today. 
is I, I just wanted to know when. Like, when did Simon really become a follower of Jesus? Like, when did it really click for him and change for him and, and, and the whole thing started to make sense to him? Now, we, we don't have a date, right? We, we, we don't have that. We don't know, was it a week later? Was it a month later? Did he go back to Cyrene and then come back? And the, We don't know. But I was looking in, in Luke's gospel and reading his, his, his information about the story. And in Luke 23, verses 26 and 27, as I was reading it, there was something that just leapt off the page to me that I just couldn't get away from. And here's what it says, verses 26 and 27 of Luke. So as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. And the soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And then the next verse says, a large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. The, the, the two instances of the word behind really just were illuminated for me as I was reading it. You know, there, there, there were people all around Jesus, all around this. It's very public, and they're screaming and shouting and cheering. Again, they're bloodthirsty. And then, and then you, have, you have these people who are following behind Jesus. Who are the people that are behind Jesus? Those are the people that love Jesus. Those are the people that, that believed that he was the Son of God, that did not believe in any way he had committed treason. They believed him. They were following behind Jesus, following. And then you have Simon. And I, I just think the Bible is, 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 every detail is important. They put the cross on his shoulders, the beam, and it says he followed behind Jesus. I think the moment that Simon became a Christ follower, follower was the moment that the cross was put on his shoulders. And the moment that he began to follow Jesus. And where did he follow Jesus to? Straight to the cross. Straight to that point of, of execution for Jesus. Now you can say, well, he was forced to. He was. He was compelled to. But I really begin to think about the significance of that. So what does that mean for us? You know, we use the word Christian. We use that a lot. It's used a lot in our society. It's become kind of a negative term in, in a lot of ways. Did you know that, that Jesus and the Bible never asked us to become a Christian? Did you know Jesus never went around asking people to become Christians? Did you know that the term Christian was not given to the followers of Christ by some uh, apostle or leading uh, leader of the movement? No, no, no. Christians were, that term was given to the believers at Antioch by outsiders. He's called, these are, these are Christians. Just kind of like, that's eh, what they are, you know? We've adopted it and we adore it and that's fine. But you know, Jesus, he, he never said, be a Christian. When he started his ministry and he started going out to recruit disciples, you know what his, his phrase was, his catchphrase was, what, what he told people? He always says, he said, come, do what? Follow me. Follow me. The early believers were called followers of the way. We call it now Christ followers. Being a follower of Christ is far more true to the essence of why Jesus came than just the term Christian. But he said, follow me. And I just find it so, so amazing that, that, that Simon literally followed Jesus to his death. And I said I had a question, and here's the question. I would say this, in, in kind of in two, two arenas, is, is what is your vantage point of Jesus? And for those of you that would say... I, I don't really know, like, if I believe who Jesus is. I believe that he's the son of God. I can go with you, Josh. He's a historical figure. I get that. History books say it. But, but the claim that he's the son of God and that he forgives all sin 
and that he provides a way to have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know. I'd say, what is, what is it? And could it be? Could it be that he's true? I believe it. 100%. That's the first scenario. Here's the second scenario I have. I ask the question, what is your, your vantage point of Jesus? If you're here and you, and you, you believe Jesus, you would say, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe him. I would say, well, then what, what's your vantage point of him now? Are you, are you following him? Because I think the hardest place in life to be when you're a Christian, and just kind of in general at times, is to be following Jesus. I'm just going to be honest. I think it's the best place to be. But sometimes I just think it's the hardest. I, I think far too many of us are probably off to the side trying to get Jesus to come over to where we're at. Trying to convince him, hey, Jesus, if, if you just do it this way, if you would just come over here, I think it would work out good. Some of us, we're, we're, just, we're just spectating. We're not trying to get Jesus to do anything because we just we don't really know what to do ourselves. We're just, we're just spectating. But the best place to be, the greatest place to be is behind Jesus. You know, one of the hardest parts of the story is, is the fact that Simon had to carry a cross that wasn't his own, right? But did he really? Was it really not his no, no, no. Jesus had to carry a cross that wasn't his own. Who's Simon? Again, he's you and me. Simon was guilty of something, right? Simon was more deserving of that cross than Jesus was. And I, I love it that, that, that although he had to carry it, because sometimes when we get into this, this walk of being a believer, you know, we may have been told, hey, believe in Jesus and you'll never have any problems, right? I mean, no, that's not true. We got issues. We got problems. And sometimes you got to carry something that you don't think you should carry. Sometimes you got to go through stuff that you don't even know how to, how to carry, much less how it's going to end. And there are times that God will put something on our shoulders that we just think, God, I, 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 I can't do this. I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you what, God, I'm, I'm just afraid. I, I, I don't know if I take this step if it's going to work. But if we'll just get behind Jesus, here's one thing I can guarantee you. Although Simon carried that cross a portion of the way, the one thing that Jesus did not ask him to do was get on that cross. He did not ask Simon to crawl up there and take the punishment. He may have carried it a portion of the way, but Jesus got up on there, took that punishment, took that pain. And I can guarantee you this. If you follow Jesus, if you just get behind him, He'll never lead you to destruction. He'll never lead you to public disgrace. He'll never lead you to shame. There may be some pain, but on the other side of that is going to be healing. On the other side of that is going to be freedom. You see, God doesn't go around anything. God doesn't just deal with symptoms. God deals with the root. See, we, when it gets tough, when it's get diff, it gets difficult, that's when we get over here. Like, Come on, Jesus. Come this way. We're, we're going to go around that mountain. We're going to go around that mountain of our marriage. We're going to go around that mountain of our emotional issues. We're going to go around that mountain of deep hurt. We're going to go around. We, we, we ain't going to touch that, Jesus. I, I, I can't go through that mountain. Jesus says, hey, you're going to feel the burden for a little bit. You're going to feel the weight, but just, just let me walk through it with you. I'm going, to, I'm going to go first. All right? Follow me. Just follow me. That's my challenge. Can you follow me? Can, can you just make the decision? 
that if you're, if you're off to the side, maybe today just take one step. Because, because following Jesus, it's a whole lot of trust and it's a whole lot of faith. I'm going to tell you that. And you got to fight some fear, but I'm, I promise you, he's good. He's faithful. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to find freedom in every area of your life. He wants you to discover that purpose. And then he wants you to make a difference. And oh, did Simon make a difference? Did he make a difference? He did.